0: Day on fuzzy logic we are going to be going all over the science world for our news we're going to be talking about whale song cow fitbits uh wombat poo and uh dust storms as well as fake news and mosquitoes in there too a whole bunch of science coming up today right here on fuzzy logic And welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick and it's a pleasure to be with you today as we start to delve into the world of science. Thanks very much to Bruce on Irish Voice for the show before. But uh, now we're going to move into a... uh, to a different part of the world and a no way from Ireland into the science world. And I've got a whole bunch of stories of uh, research that's come out this week that I reckon is worth sharing with you. So to jump in, at the start, I thought I might start where many of us often start our Sundays, which is with a freshly brewed cup of coffee or tea. And in this case, uh, I want to know uh, which one you prefer. Do you prefer coffee? Or do you start your day with an English breakfast tea? Something along those lines. Well, your choice could actually not be so much a uh, choice that you've made, but it could be a result of your genes and how they uh, affect how you experience bitter flavours. So this research just came out this week and... uh, looks at tea and coffee. Now, these drinks are generally bitter because uh, they contain bitter-tasting substances such as caffeine. Uh, quinine is also in there. Now, that contributes to the bitterness of coffee, uh, but it's also quite commonly found in tonic water too. And uh, our bodies have uh, bitter-taste receptor genes that are responsible for the perception of caffeine, the perception of quinine, uh, and also a man-made bitter substance uh, known as propylthiouracil or prop. For short, and uh, this molecule actually kind of has the same bitterness as Brussels sprouts. Uh, for those who can taste that bitterness, there. And uh, previous research that happened before this uh, showed that uh, there are inherited factors that play a role in the amount of coffee and tea a person drinks a day, and uh, the ability to digest caffeine plays an important role in people's consumption of these caffeinated beverages. But uh, what researchers didn't actually know was whether uh, genes for bitter taste perception were involved in determining how much of this, uh, these beverages we consume. Uh, Previous studies that had been done had small sample sizes or inconsistent relationships. So in this new study in the UK, uh, researchers actually examined the consumption of coffee and tea in a cohort of more than 400,000 men and women aged 37 to 73 in the UK uh, for whom they also had data about their bitter receptor genes. They had all this data from the uh, Biobank. Uh, so they knew the DNA there and uh, they employed a method commonly used in epidemiology called Mendelian randomization uh, to compare G- uh, coffee and tea in cake between people who did or did not carry particular bitter taste receptor genes. So they reckon they'd identified these receptors and uh, they were going to look at them. And what did they fa- find well compared to an average person they showed that people who carried the bitter taste receptor for caffeine were more likely to be heavy coffee drinkers meaning they drank more than four cups of coffee four cups of coffee a day that's a lot of coffee isn't it I know I'm, I'm a two cup a day person and uh, that's more than enough for me uh, but uh, every extra copy of the bitter taste receptor gene that they had uh, led to a 20% higher chance of being a heavy coffee drinker Uh, and these super tasters of caffeine also drank less tea so it's interesting because as caffeine contributes not only to the bitterness of coffee but it's also it's perceived strength and texture people who are better at detecting caffeine, may actually find it more enjoyable and flavourful. In contrast to that, people who carried the bitter taste receptors for quinine or prop, this uh, synthetic compound, drank less coffee and more tea. So compared to an average person for every extra copy of the quinine or prop receptor gene that was linked with a 9 or, uh, 9% or 4% higher chance of being a heavy tea drinker, meaning they drank more than 5 cups of tea a day. When there's a need for caffeine, uh, tasters of quinine and prop could choose tea over coffee because they tended to be more sensitive to overall bitterness. So it's interesting. So coffee drinkers are sensitive to that caffeine detection, while um, people who are sensitive to overall bitterness tend to drink tea. So it uh, does show that the genes linked for bitter taste perception are linked with the amount of coffee and tea we drink. And so researchers on this study are interested to see if this finding could lead to future studies investigating whether super tasters of bitter molecules are less prone to drink high and perhaps even unhealthy amounts of coffee and tea or other drinks containing bitter molecules. But of course, you can't always blame everything on your genes. There's always a bit of nurture in with the nature. And uh, I don't know about you, but if you're a child and you dislike the bitterness of tea or coffee, you might have noticed that your taste changed over time. I know it certainly did for me. I used to be a tea drinker all the way and then slowly got into drinking milky coffees and now I have my coffee black. So our tastes and dietary habits do change over time. So, you know, even if the genes aren't there, you might eventually develop a taste for coffee. So there you go. Right there, uh, coffee and tea could be genetically determined Might explain why Uh, you might be a family of coffee drinkers or tea drinkers, uh, but uh, it's not all about the genes, of course, as always. Uh, Moving on now from uh, tea and coffee to uh, the milk that goes in there. Well, not so much the milk, but the cows themselves who produce it. And uh, I had to laugh when I saw this headline uh, this week Fitbit for cows. That's right, uh, cattle farmers. in Australia, David and Melita Smith have developed a device they basically call a Fitbit for cows, because uh, they want to keep better track of their livestock. Uh, basically, it's it's an innovation that comes with better technology. Uh, these farmers, uh, David and Melita, wanted to do things better uh, than what they had, and the only that way they could do that was with Data data is the big driver nowadays. Uh, and so they wanted to know more about their animals, what condition they were in, how they were going. Uh, so they founded a startup called Cirrus Tag, uh, C-E-R-E-S, Cirrus Tag, in 2016, and uh, developed a smart ear tag which produces similar data to let that delivered by the smartwatches that we have, Fitbits, those sorts of step counters, that sort of thing um they actually drew on their uh, backgrounds in engineering and education and used gps to track positioning and accelerometers to monitor movement and uh, measure temperatures to overall track that cow health uh, as they said earlier data is king um The aim, to save farmers time and money compared to the cost of manually tracking their herds using vehicles or aircraft. Because basically using this device, farmers can track where their herds graze. Uh, If an animal's escaped or been stolen, they can see where it's gone. And even unusual movements, which could indicate an animal is giving birth or is sick... uh, uh, Basically, they reckon comparing it to a Fitbit actually undersells uh, the item. There's much more to it than that. It is a complex, valuable piece of equipment uh, that's been made really simple for farmers to use. And at the... uh, David and Melita said that uh, it's going to be a revolution in the way we manage animals on the land and the way we look at things all the way down that supply chain Uh, because, you know, as uh, world population increases, we're going to be needing to do more and more farming with less and less land to do it on. Um, And so we have to get better at uh, what we do. Now, this uh, startup uh, for Sirius Track was self funded initially, uh, but just recently uh, the farmers have signed collaboration agreements with CSIRO, uh, Meat and Livestock Australia, and James Cook University this year as well. Uh, and uh, the device has been successfully trialled on 100 cattle at CSIRO's Lansdowne uh, Research Station in Townsville, Queensland, last week. Um, Aussie farmers need every bit of help they can get right now, so they're pleased it's taken less then uh, a year for this technology to move from the research phase into development for a real-world trial on cattle Uh, that's from uh, the CSIRO group leader Dr Ed Charmley and uh, so they're going to be looking into the future to uh, you know make it even better create a smaller lighter tag added functionality uh, and hoping to alert farmers to illnesses at earlier stages in the cow. Uh, so fantastic stuff. Looking to go to market in mid-2020. So there you go. Fitbit for cows, making sure they're fit and healthy, keeping them with uh, what's going on. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 98.3 2XFM Community Radio, people powered radio, and it's a pleasure to have you tuning in today, folks. As uh I get to go through some of the science news, Broderick here, and uh, basically picked my favourite science stories from the week because, you know, that's how I like to do things here. Because science has a bunch of different things that are interesting and always happening. So what are we going to talk about today? Well... One thing uh, that we do try and avoid when talking about science news here on Fuzzy is fake news. We don't like fake news. Uh, And it's become more and more of a thing uh, around the world. I've even seen in classrooms now teachers running lessons on fake news and how to spot fake news and what you can do to help not spread fake news any further. So clearly it's an important point and... uh, young people and old need to know uh, about fake news. But a recent study that's come out has looked at uh, how fake news helps to make us believe things. And uh, in this case, uh, one of the big things that fake news uses are pictures. Yes, that's right. According to a growing body of evidence, uh, there are pictures that are changing the whether you or not you believe a claim. For example, if I said uh, giraffes are the only mammals that can't jump, you might believe me, you might not, but if that was presented to you online with a picture of a giraffe, and it doesn't have to be a giraffe jumping or not jumping, um, but if I said giraffe's the only mammals that can't, can't jump and with a picture of a giraffe next to it, you are more likely... To believe me, uh, if there is a picture of the giraffe, yes, it it doesn't have to be doing anything; it just has to be a generic photograph um, to attach to it the fact there. Now, I, I shall clarify at this point that, that information is false. Giraffes can jump; uh, elephants can't. They're the only mammals that can't jump, uh, but. Uh, This research coming from the Australian National University and researcher Dr Erin Newman uh, has shown that people are more likely to believe these sorts of facts when presented alongside a photo. And uh, on top of that, we're probably not aware that it's affecting our decision making. Uh, they've been doing a number of studies across uh, five or six years of uh, research here, and they've found that adding a photograph to a message, even when the photo provides no evidence, actually systematically shapes people's beliefs. Yes, that's right, instead of turning to facts or general knowledge, you, people often go with what feels right, uh, or in other words, intuition. Uh, When we're presented with facts and photographs with a fact increase our ease as humans, Uh, the ease at which we can uh, process information and helps make information feel right. And it's it's just hilarious uh, that uh, this can happen. And in fact, uh, favourably affects a person's evaluation of a claim sixty to seventy percent of a time. And in fact, in the several experiments that these researchers have done, uh, participants were asked to rate uh, the claim as true or false, including control claims without pictures. And yeah, sixty to seventy percent of the time, uh, they're going favourably just because there's a picture with it. Um, and the pictures, as I've said, don't even have to tell you anything about the claim at all. Uh, it can just, for the giraffe claim, it can just be a photo of the face of a giraffe, of the uh, body of a giraffe. It doesn't have to be showing whether or not it can jump. Uh, so participants much more likely to believe true and false claims if they're presented alongside that picture. And a large majority of these research participants claimed they weren't influenced by the presence of an image even though the data clearly shows they were. So we know that people are affected by the image and we also know that it's uh, unconscious. We don't know that this uh, effect is happening to us. Um The other side of things that uh, the researchers have also looked at is uh, audio quality uh, or even how easy someone's name is to pronounce, affect whether people rate information as true. Uh, Any variable basically that increases the ease at which uh, people can process a message also increases the chances that people believe it. So if you're listening to me on a clear line here on the radio, folks, then I, I think uh, perhaps you're more likely to believe what I'm saying. Uh, but uh, if it's a bit crackly, uh, then some of my claims might be seem less believable. Uh, and so it becomes quite dangerous, especially around fake news, because a flashy headline with uh, false information plus a nice photo uh, suddenly increases the chances that this false information sticks. Uh Another uh, researcher from the University of Queensland, Dr Jason Tangen, said our judgments and decisions are actually affected by a range of invisible and seemingly unimportant factors. Uh, you know, we're largely oblivious to the determinants of our own behaviour. We misjudge how long tasks take. We don't know what makes us happy or unhappy, or the factors that affect our impression of a job candidate, and uh, and we're surprised to learn a photo can influence our truth judgments. Uh, so it's interesting because uh, while it might seem like a trivial, funding, trivial finding rather here from the ANU, the implications for how we uh, come to believe things is quite important. And when we look at people like expert witnesses presenting evidence in court, uh, that's a, a place where people's lives and livelihoods hang in the balance. Uh, and uh, so... It's important. Uh, Dr. Tangan did state, though, that uh, people are less likely to be influenced by non-probative factors, or so these random factors, if they already had background knowledge in an issue. So basically, the more you know, the less likely you are to be swayed by irrelevant information. So the best way to avoid traps like these is to learn more, to know more. <laughs> and uh there's plenty of uh research recently on the best ways to learn new skills so plenty of resources out there to learn new things and i think one great way to learn new things is to listen to fuzzy logic because we're always presenting interesting things interesting facts interesting stories interesting new science and learning new things and uh One of my favourite new things that came out this week in research, it wasn't so much a new discovery, but a new discovery of why something happens. Uh, Now, many years ago, I learnt the wonderful fact, which I love to bring out, uh, especially around children, uh, because it is a poop-based fact, uh, that wombats do cube-shaped poos. Did you know that? uh, it's an interesting fact here. Um, why do they do cube shaped poos? Well, they th- uh, researchers think it's probably to mark uh, territorial borders around their burrows uh, with these fragrant piles of poo, and the larger the poo pile, the better. Uh, so, if they're doing a cube shaped poo, then uh, it's much easier, th- it's much more likely that the poo is going to stick around uh, because cubes don't roll particularly well, unlike uh, the round pellet shaped poo that. Uh, a lot of um a lot of people tend a lot of people <laughs> a lot of animals tend to do my gosh um but uh so these cube shaped blocks can uh, end up being stacked up outside uh burrows and uh, those sorts of things around us and uh that's why wombats do uh, have cube-shaped poos. That's why it seems to benefit them, um, and uh, they can, they deposit it in their burrow entrances around prominent rocks, raised ground, logs. It's not going to roll away where they put it. And in fact, I don't know if you've uh, ever been bushwalking in a national park where wombats are prevalent. And uh, seen them about the place. You can always tell they're around. There's these cube poos uh, sitting there, and I've been looking out for them for years now. You might not see the wombats, but you certainly see their cube shaped poos. So that's a fact. That's been well established for quite a while. But the interesting discovery this week was how they actually produce these cube shaped poos because. It's, it's not an easy thing to produce a cube. Um, I mean, you might have seen it in your Play-Doh things and that sort of thing. If you have a square shape and you push things to a square shape, uh, it comes out in a square. But um, it's not uh, common in our in, in nature. It's not common in bodies to produce uh, square-shaped tubes. Um, round is, is much more common and much more easily done. Uh, so people uh, have been curious for years. And so recently some scientists, not in Australia but at the Georgia Institute of Tech in uh, Atlanta in the USA uh, Patricia Yang a postdoctoral fellow there in mechanical engineering was curious why do these cubicle feces exist uh, so they decided to have a look at the problem and uh, to gain new site insights into this mystery they actually studied the digestive tracts tracts of common wombats that had been euthanized after being struck by cars and trucks on roads in Tasmania. Uh, So not looking at uh, wombats that were alive, but uh, unfortunate roadkill over in Tassie. And what they found was... uh, Under close inspection, they found that wombats' excrement solidified in the last 8% of the intestine, uh, where the feces slowly built up as blocks the size of long and chunky sugar cubes. Uh, By emptying the intestines and inflating them with long modelling balloons. That's right, you know, the animal balloons that uh, clowns use at children's parties and out and about. They use modelling balloons, inflated the intestine, and they measured how the tissue within wombat intestines stretched in different places. And uh, they're going to be presenting this, I love this, at the uh, Fluid Dynamics Division of the American Physical Society in Georgia soon. Uh, but... Uh, They, um, the team explained how the last section of the wombat intestine does not actually stretch evenly unlike the rest of the intestine. Uh, When measured around the circumference, some parts have more give than others. And so it basically allows the intestine to deform in such a way that it packs faeces into two centimetre wide cubes rather than the usual sausage shapes or something like that. And uh, they basically then compared this to pig intestines and found no such irregularities in the way pig intestines stretched uh, so it's it's basically this strange uh, stretchiness in wombat intestines. They've got uh, periodic stiffness, so it goes stiff, soft, stiff, soft along the circumference of the intestine, and this is what helps form cubical feces. Um, But uh, the researchers haven't finished the job yet uh, because to produce a poo with a square cross-section, the circumference of the intestine would need four stretchy regions interspersed with four stiff regions. That way the stiff regions form the flat faces, the four flat faces around the poo, uh, while the stretchier parts allow corners to form. Uh, Now, the balloon test revealed only three stretchy parts and two stiffer ones. Uh, So the researchers aren't quite sure what's going on here, and uh, they suggest that uh, the other stiff and stretchy bits may actually only become apparent when they can inflate the intestines to a larger size. Basically, in other words, make the intestines strain a little harder. Now, why would you need to do this sort of research? I hear you asking folks. I like to talk about the weird research here, but there's got to be a reason behind it. And in this case, it's actually got engineering applications. Um, currently, engineers only have two methods for making cubes, either moulding them or cutting them. Uh And so the wombat wombat intestine suggests a third route to make cubes is possible. And it could be a method that can be applied to manufacturing processes. Uh, We want to be able to learn from wombats and hopefully apply this novel method in a way to manufacturing uh, to help make cubes in an efficient way. So there you go, folks. If uh, you see cubes in the future, they may be shaped by wombat intestines. Well, not so much wombat intestines, but the knowledge that we gain by researching them. So some really interesting stuff there on uh, wombat poo, or scat, as uh, is the technical name for uh, for animal faeces when it's found in the wild. And uh, so, look, uh, before I throw to another song, folks, I thought this was a great opportunity to share some scat facts. That's right, the facts around scat uh, and I thought well what better way to do this with a little bit of scat music so I found uh, Ella Fitzgerald here doing some scat singing Uh, I'm going to put that on as my backing track folks while I share some of these scat facts Thanks, Ella, for some lovely scat in the background here while I share some scat facts. Did you know the beautiful white sand beaches and reefs of tropical areas around the world are largely there thanks to parrotfish scat. They munch coral, grind it down and poop it out and give us beautiful white sandy beaches. Birds of prey, like peregrine falcons, tend to poop before takeoff to lighten their load when flying. Cloths leave the safety of their trees only once a week and it's for their weekly poo. That's right, when they're scatting, it's a fairly treacherous mission climbing down as it makes them intensely vulnerable to predators. And scientists aren't quite sure why they have to poop on the ground in the first place. To attract a mate, hippos use something called a rotor tail move where they spin their tail to launch their poop out underwater. Speaking of flinging poop, the Adele penguin is a peculiar breed that can shoot its poop quite some distance away from its body. Yes, so right, when they scat, uh, it goes well away, and scientists believe that they develop this scat-shooting behaviour in order to keep their body relatively clean of faecal bacteria. Pandas eat a lot of bamboo daily, which means they poop a lot too. 22 kilos a day. Houseflies are in a constant state of scatting. Food goes in, nearly instantly digested, and goes right back out. And uh, one more to finish off. It's not an animal scat fact, but a human one. I thought this was quite interesting. Along with landing on the moon, Neil Armstrong also left four bags of poop behind. Uh, Well, actually, technically, he left four defecation collection devices, but that's just a fancy way to say poop bags. And that's Scat Facts to Scat. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on Two X Community Radio, Broderick here in the studio and uh, it's time for another song but before I get into that I'm going to play a little clip of something. I'm going to tell you what it is after the song though so have a listen to this. What do you think this is folks? Quiet, uh, but uh, what is that noise? I'm going to tell you after we have a little bit of music here. Uh, So let's uh, jump over. This is uh, the April Maze with uh, their song, I've Seen the Rain. The April May's there with I've Seen the Rain. Speaking of rain, there have been uh, some interesting storms that have been coming through Canberra over the last couple of days. And uh, there have been rain, there have been thunder and lightning. And uh, there were some dust storms too that came through the east coast. A thick line of dust basically smothered much of New South Wales and Sydney. Um, caused air quality to reach hazardous levels and uh, another wave of dust could be set to come, uh, which uh, is a warning to people who have breathing difficulties already. Uh, Strong winds from a low-pressure system whipped up masses of dirt across uh, New South Wales and the ACT, which is such a drought-stricken state, Uh, and this dust headed towards the coast on Thursday. Storms stretch more than 500 kilometres from the Victorian border through Canberra and up towards Queensland. And uh, the Bureau of Meteorology senior meteorologist Simon Lewis said more dust is expected to be pushed to the coast. Was uh, expected to be pushed to the coast on late Thursday night, early Friday morning. Uh, it's uh, the dust shouldn't be underestimated. Uh, it uh, is quite uh, different. It's looking more grey and hazy uh, with uh, the majority of the dust actually coming from lake beds in South Australia. So it doesn't quite look as red and spectacular as the 2009 uh, dust storms that plague Sydney, but the air quality has dropped significantly. Um, and so uh, people are advised to take it uh, easy, to be careful, especially if they do have... Uh, 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 breathing uh, issues already, Um, these hazardous levels of dust can cause problems but the big question is uh, where do dust storms come from? How do they form? What's going on? Well, uh, Basically a dust storm is caused when hot dry winds uh, come before a big cold front so as the cold front moves through turbulent winds behind pick up the dust and carry it uh, from west to east so in this case from inland towards that coast of New South Wales now, usually the dust phenomenon doesn't get all the way to the east coast. Um, but uh, but it, uh, in this case, it was predicted that it would... Now, In a dust storm, you can see less than a kilometre ahead of you, and uh, often you get thunderstorm activity with the cold front that might cause the dust to be rained out, or sometimes the front might slip off to the south and uh, not actually come through. Uh, So there are extraordinary conditions that have brought this dust storm to the coast. Uh, Now, the other dimension to a dust storm is generally that the area has to be in drought, especially in the inland areas. And we certainly do have big examples of that at the moment across inland Australia and across New South Wales there particularly. Um, And there's a simple correlation here with the drought, especially with the length of drought and the occurrence of dust storms. The ongoing drought, more likely to see more dust storms. Uh, so as I mentioned previously, one of the previous uh, most memorable dust storms in 2009 was the uh, Red Dawn event. Uh, clouds of red dust swept across the ACT, Queensland, New South Wales. There's some great red pictures of Sydney in that. And in this case, air particle concentration, so particles in the air climbed to 15,400 micrograms per cubic metre of air. Now, normally that particle level is about 20 micrograms, so from 20 to 15,000, you're talking almost 1,000 times uh, increase in particulate levels, which is huge. Uh, at that time, flights were grounded, construction sites closed, kids didn't go to school, and even outdoor sporting events were cancelled. Uh, and some outdoor training was cancelled in Sydney throughout the week. Uh, now, dust storms are a cyclical phenomena triggered by droughts and droughts. During the Millennium Drought, there were several large dust storms, as well as the droughts during the 1960s, also during the Depression, World War II... Uh, The dust storm, of course, brings these health warnings, but it can also be a good thing as well um, because as the dust blows over the ocean, uh, the nutrients that are blown off topsoil can actually feed plankton blooms. And uh, plankton's very important at the bottom of the marine food chain. All other life in the ocean relies on it. Uh, So having these plankton blooms uh, can uh, be quite important for the ocean too. So there you go. Speaking of the ocean, uh, before the break, folks, I gave you a a fuzzy logic secret sound and uh, I just gave you a clue there. It's got something to do with the ocean. Let's have a listen again to this sound. What do you think it is? It's pretty quiet there. Sounds a bit like a creaky door or something like that, but it's not, folks. Uh, What this is, is a humpback whale song. And uh, some uh, interesting research was published this week in uh, Science uh, that showed that uh, whale songs uh, go through trends. Just like the Hottest 100 changes in uh, the human world, uh, whale songs go through fads and uh, these fads don't stick around for long. Every few years, males swap out these chorus of squeaks and groans for brand new ones. And uh, scientists are starting to figure out how these sort of uh, musical cultural revolutions are taking place. All male humpbacks in a population generally sing the same song and they appear to learn new ones somewhat like people do. Uh, So, males in the Eastern Australian population of humpbacks uh, pick up a new song every few years uh, from the West Australian population at shared feeding grounds or while migrating. And uh, over the next few years, then the songs spread to all South Pacific populations. To understand how the whales uh, learn these songs, scientists actually analysed Eastern Australian whale songs over 13 consecutive years. They used spectrograms of uh, 412 song cycles from 95 singers uh, and the scientists scored each tune's complexity for the number of sounds, themes, studied the subtle variations individual males can add to stand out, And what they found was complexity increased as the songs evolved. Um, So as you kind of heard in that video, uh, I'll play it again in the background here, but the complexity of the song slowly increases. So this is actually the 2011 song morphing into 2012. And it would help if I turned the right audio on so we could hear it. There we go. So there's part of the simple song. Yeah, so slightly get, getting slightly more complicated there. The interesting thing is that uh, after a song revolution, changing the song, the songs that they sang actually became shorter again, with fewer sounds and themes. Uh, so these revolutionary songs might be less complex than the old ones uh, because whales might only be able to learn a certain amount of new material at the time. That's what scientists are thinking uh so it's a it's a really interesting study here to try and work out what's going on uh with these messages that whales are sending out there into the ocean Florence and the machine there with how big how blue, how beautiful, which tied in nicely to the um Whale sounds we were talking about before the song. But uh, during the break, I had a call from a listener who talked about uh, some other creatures that make noise in the ocean. Uh, I've got them on the background here. We might start to hear some clicking soon. And uh, these are probably at the opposite end of the scale in terms of ocean creatures. These are barnacles clicking uh, to communicate to each other. And It's thought that um, they actually start to communicate to each other through these series of clickings, uh, and uh, several of them do it at the same time. And so it's thought that they might be communicating with each other. Now, the listener who called in said that he heard this uh, through a CIT uh, lecturer, Um, but uh, I've got this clip here from uh, the Oregon coast over in... Uh, the US there, so it's quite interesting to hear what's going on as these um, these small shell creatures communicate to each other through a series of clicking and uh, other things there. Anyway. Uh, great little story there. So thanks for calling in and uh, sharing that with us. Folks if you do uh, have anything you want to share with us here at Fuzzy Logic uh, you can always call in the studio six two four seven double four double zero 4400 anytime uh, I generally don't pick up though until we go to a song because uh, it's a bit hard to talk on air and uh, talk on the phone at the same time uh, or if uh, you want to contact us here at Fuzzy just send an email to askfuzzy at zoho.com that's askfuzzy at zen O-H-O dot com Uh, or you can connect with us through our Facebook page or our Twitter feed Uh, finally we do broadcast our shows we podcast them afterwards uh, and you can find our podcast uh, through the iTunes store or online at fuzzylogic on 2XX dot podbean dot com so make sure you check it out if you do like today's show or you can listen to any of our previous shows there too to finish off, I've got uh, one last story to tell. This one's coming from overseas, and uh, a uh, an engineering story from the town of Pisa, where a certain tower there isn't leaning so much anymore. Uh, in 2001, the Leaning Tower of Pisa was actually closed for more than a decade. Uh, sorry, uh, in n- the 1990s, the, the tower was closed for more than a decade and reopened in 2001 because uh, engineers were quite uh, worried about the lean on the tower. It had reached a critical position. Uh, when it was closed for, that, uh, for over a decade, they managed to write it... Um, and uh, reduce uh, 43 centimeters off the lean. And uh, over the last few years, that's been reduced by another four centimeters. Uh, so the, tower, the side of the tower that's sitting up too high has come down another four centimeters. Uh, So the engineers are basically uh, trying to take some soil away from the high side of the tower so that it starts to come down uh, by positioning a series of pipes with drills to take that soil out there. Um, They've been doing this by looking at how the tower was built initially uh, in the 12th century uh, and uh, looking at the two stone blocks that are attached there and how they feed into the leaning there So I think it's fantastic that uh, this, look, there's still a lean on the tower. I don't think you could get rid of that, but they're trying to maintain that lean so it doesn't get too far over so we can keep this tower there for many more years to come and uh, not have it critical. And, in fact, you can go back up in the tower again. It reopened to the public in 2001, so you can go in and check it out and uh, feel the lean as you go through. And, of course, pose for the obligatory photo there with the hands out in the air and uh, look the same as everyone else that's uh, doing it there too. That just about wraps up the show here today on Fuzzy Logic. I've loved bringing you the world of science here uh, on a Sunday and uh, I hope you tune in next week for another episode. Uh, same time, same place here on Two uh, XFM uh, People Powered Radio. My name Ben been Broderick and this has been Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.